The sun is shining at the De Vere Cotswolds Water Park, where pensions expert is attending this year's PLSA Local Authority Conference. Last time the conference took place, pre-pandemic, Rishi Sunak, then Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Local Government, had his speech stormed by environmental campaigners. There's no sign of any trouble so far, but we're joined today by two people who are seeking to make their own positive change to the pensions world via less dramatic means. My name is Alex Janiot, and I'm joined by Rachel Brothwood from the West Midlands Pension Fund and Tiffany Zhang from the PLSA. Welcome to you both. Rachel, Tiffany, both of you appeared on a panel today taking us through fresh PLSA research into the local government pension scheme, examining its qualities, its deficiencies and what could be, what could be done to improve it. Tiffany, what for you were the standout findings from this report? Well, I think, well, first of all, the report's 100 pages long, so we won't have the entire time to go through all of them. But I would say there is one overarching find, which is actually, number one, the the LGPS is in an incredibly strong position financially and operationally, and it's from that position of strength that this piece of independent work was commissioned. And what we found is that actually there's lots of opportunities coming down the track to future-proof the scheme. So that's sort of like the main takeaway. There's 24 recommendations, can't go through all of them, but they fall under four main umbrellas. So the first is under the theme of regulatory and operational complexity and working environment. The second is around employers within the LGPS. The third is around scheme members. And the last is operational sustainability, which in a way kind of ties into all those other three things. So um, I think the next step for us really is to go away with Rachel and the rest of our committee with the LGPS and really do a deep dive into this 24 recommendations, those four themes, and decide on our next steps. And Rachel, from a scheme perspective, was there anything there that, was, that surprised you? In terms of surprises, I'd say no, but it is the first time um, in a long time that we've been able to talk to many, many different parties who are involved in the day-to-day operation of the scheme in various funds up and down the UK and really get their perspective of what it's like dealing with the regulations, working with members and employers and what they see needs to change and be thought about if the scheme is going to be resilient over the long term. So we had great participation, 98 people responding, and that's really provided a great base for further discussion. Sure. I mean, I thought there were some really interesting findings on engagement between LGBS funds and, and the employers. And there appears to be a decent level of satisfaction, but an apparent lack of understanding among employers when it comes to costs and value. And that's why I led my, my write-up on this report on today. Mm-hmm. 88% uh, responses suggested that they might leave. Oh, sorry, of those who might leave, 88% said they were citing affordability. So, Rachel, perhaps you could take me th- through that point and your thoughts on how we can help employers better understand kind of the value of being in the LGPS and really what it's for. Yeah, certainly. I think it's really important just to take stock around who's in the LGPS and the the members that we provide benefits for. So we work with many different employers across sectors. It's not just local authorities. Um, It is support staff within higher education, further education, a lot of academy schools and contractors. So it's a broad basis of covering many sectors and it's typically the lower paid workers in those sectors. So we don't see people coming out of the scheme with particularly high benefits but they do provide a very essential benefit and top up to to state pensions. And 
from an employer perspective, what we do see, and it's mentioned in the report, the web of regulation and guidance that employers come to when they join the LGPS, and the, the, the cost is, is, is one of those, are a real detractor to the valuable, essentially, recruitment and retention tool that the scheme provides. So yeah, we do have a, a role with funds and within schemes within and the scheme as a whole to ensure that there aren't barriers to entry and engagement with the scheme, ensure, recognise really that not one size does fit all for our employer base and ensure we're giving them the right education and support so that they can effectively financially plan to provide valuable benefit over the long term and that will require an element of joined up discussion at a national level. Can you give me any on-the-ground examples? I understand the turning of a lot of English schools into academies has been a challenge for local authorities, and that that's not the teachers, the teachers in the teachers' pension scheme, it's the back office staff. What does that look like in practice for you guys? And I assume that's contributing to the rise in employers in your fund. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is, and um, rise in academisation has had sort of two, I say, two different layers of effect because you've got the schools themselves coming out of local authority um, control, so they, from that point, they are a separate employer within the funds, and then they also can choose their own service providers. So their catering, their cleaning companies, um, also could be outsourced and no longer. Um, obtaining those services through the local authority. So one academisation can result in actually three or four different employers participating in an LGPS fund and it's the main driver for the growth of the number of employers within the scheme which now sits at around 17,000. Sure, I mean Tiffany, uh, what kind of measures are the PSA calling for to address these? Are there any kind of academy specific ideas that you guys are putting forward? No, not at this moment. I think uh, the two main ones around this issue around affordability, the first one is to just build on what what Rachel said, is it's really important to start these conversations early, so before they enter the scheme. So some of the things that we heard, and again, we didn't speak to employers for this particular project, only on the fund side, um, but what we heard back was that um, too late into their journey in the scheme, employers then realized what their responsibilities were, both financial, but also to uh, their other responsibilities, including communication with scheme members. So if these sorts of responsibilities were communicated early on and uh, support was provided at the point of entry at the scheme and throughout as well, then it may not feel so overwhelming sort of when potential hiccups might appear because then the, the information would have been provided all along and uh, safeguards would have been put in place before anything really would have happened. And I can build on that if that's okay because it's a really good example of where perhaps our fragmented regulatory framework mm. in the pensions world is a bit of a challenge. So um, we don't have in the LGPS um, anything like a notifiable events mm. framework, which would require employers to inform the pension funds at an early stage of a potential outsourcing or um, potential change in contract. So the opportunity for funds to proactively engage with employers at these times of change, um, there isn't the mechanisms to really enforce that reporting at the minute. So we are very much in the hands of our employers choosing to share that information for us and it's not always timely so we can help but we need to know what's happening in their world for us to be able to assist them. 
can I also add to that as well? Sorry, this is just sort of like pulling a thread, lots of things coming out. So the, the other thing I think this this brings to mind is within the research about, um, so tied to one of their themes, so, the, the, so mentioned in our panel, our four themes are interconnected. They're not really sorted in siloed. Like if you change something in one aspect, it comes out somewhere else. So this this aspect of that the Rachel just said about uh, t- using something similar like TPR's notifiable offence framework, for instance, is, is a great idea. But then a lot of the responsibility to oversee these administrative complexities, making sure employers are up to speed on everything, really then falls onto the fund. And it doesn't know where is it really written where that needs to be the case. And you know, when we talk about operational sustainability, there's lots of constrained resources as well. So all the other regulatory stuff they have to deal with, and this as well, it just becomes too much. And just to say as well, in your original question about affordability, what the PLSA is recommending, another thing that came through the research was that while there's a lot of great best practice out there, it's not really in one place. Funds do things differently. Some guidance is clearer than others. So a recommendation here would be to commission someone to bring it all together and to have, while we respect that there are local ways of doing things, having some sort of template, some sort of more consistent guide that we can say, oh, this is, if this scenario happens when employers want to exit or when they want to enter, this is how, these are the best examples of how that's been managed and have that as a reference point. That's an interesting point you've picked up then, obviously, potential divergence in how local authorities do things. I mean, Rachel, have you encountered that in, in your career in local government and and how does that play out in practice? Is that potentially a bit of a problem? And, and, and to what extent do local authority pension schemes really diverge in, in the way they handle these, these issues? There, there is huge um, divergence in, in approach and in approach to the role of administering authority. And again, it's one of these things that's not really written down or, or regulated or monitored in, in any any formal way. But is the role of the administering authority to perform the statutory responsibility of collecting contributions and paying benefits? That's one thing. But we're now we're now moving into a world whereby there is an expectation that we that we do engage more with members and employers and support with their financial planning and retirement planning. And that's a very different proposition, a very different business model. Um, but it does take a shift in mindset on, on what is value for money. So, again, within local authorities, you can probably be aware there's a huge amount and there has been a huge amount of pressure on costs, which has driven some of the some of the resourcing challenges. But if we can think more broadly about value for money and recognise the value that we've definitely seen locally at West Midlands Pension Funds, that you know, our employees really do value it when we come to them with ideas, when we support them through an employer coaching programme, for example. But then we have to, there's a cost to that, but we get huge value back in terms of customer satisfaction. And ultimately it helps employer performance improve in terms of them performing their role in providing information to enable us to administer the scheme. And what are those costs really? And, and perhaps you talk me through kind of the, the trends. Have, a, have they surged in particular? I to extent COVID's been an issue there. And there's always been a lot made on general pressures on local authority finances. And, you know, is it a case of give or take across other departments on councils to, to make sure these costs can be met? The first step in, in this really is recognising the employees and the resources that are used to deliver the role of administering authority are different and separate to those that are delivering the other functions and statutory functions of local authorities. And um, they are effectively funded by the pot of money for the, for the scheme. And 
again, it comes back to well, how, how they're utilised really comes back to well, what is the administering authority trying to do in terms of interpreting role and what's of value to their stakeholders in the local area. And going back to your question about diversity, there is a, there is a range in expectation and a range of asks, I think, on administering authorities across the UK. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all and every authority really needs to right-size their own operations um, according to the expectations and the demands of their local stakeholders. And we heard earlier that, the, you know, for example, the Greater Manchester Pension Fund typically has around 50 employees as part of onboarding process at any one time. I mean, what's that level for you and, and how onerous is it typically? So I would say uh, very similar. Um, at Westmoreland, yeah, we have, a, we have a sort of revolving door. There is always 50, 60 employers on their way in, on their way out. And it's not to do with anything really to do with the scheme. It's to do with the change in handover of contracts, um, continued cardinisation, and links that to that sort of restructuring within within the employers. So it's nothing really to do with the scheme. Quite often the members stay within the scheme, but who's responsible for actually providing the scheme with information and paying the contributions changes. Sure. And Tiffany, we touched on regulation being a bit all over the place. I mean, you've, you've potentially called for a new body to be created to oversee the LGPS. There isn't a singular organisation that does that. What potentially could that look like and what would be the merits of having that organisation in place? Well, just to clarify that, uh, the PLSA isn't specifically asking for a new body. That isn't, that isn't a recommendation. What we're saying is, bring it back to first principles, the research showed that the membership feels, our LGPS membership feels, that there isn't one voice that's championing their needs in broader conversations in macro policy, whether it be pensions or something more. So as, as Rachel said earlier with academization, that's a clear example of something not pension-related at all that happened, but yet it happened without really taking into consideration how it would be delivered through the LGPS. And the LGPS is actually it has been directly impacted by that. So that's an example of how if there was one voice that had a view over all these different aspects of, of how the LGPS works, how it feeds into higher macro policy discussions to champion the LGPS needs, that's really what it comes down to. So that doesn't necessarily mean a new body. It could. I think our first preference is to one, um, I know Rachel used the term joined up before, and I think that applies here as well. So the first kind of step would be advocating for a more joined up approach, which means, for instance, something that's happening right now is with dashboards. When conversation first started, I think the focus, is fair to say, was on the private sector. It was DC, 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 DC is the future. And then the LGPS was sort of like an afterthought. And, you know, and this is not to toot our own horn too much, but the PLSA then, as part of our job, stepped in to say, but hold on a second, there is a whole other area called the LGPS that you need to think about that has completely different needs and resource constraints. And so because of that, the PLSA has been able to ensure that the LGPS doesn't have to follow the same timeline, essentially, as the private sector at the moment. So, that, so that's, that's a win for, for, for the LGPS members, for us. But that really highlights the, this absence of the single entity that, that we refer to in the report. So a joined up approach, meaning conversation, making sure that LGPS is part of and not a kind of afterthought. And then secondly, doing a deep dive review of of the existing bodies, so the scheme advisory boards are an example of this, the current uh, DLUC, the department is another example of this, so there are already existing bodies 
that do different parts of the thing that we're describing, which is championing the, the LGPS's needs, recognizing its constraints, resource-wise, budget-wise, um, and it, the difficulties in talent management specifically for the, that are specific to the LGPS. So maybe a new body, maybe taking an existing body and expanding its, 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 its weight, basically, in conversation. Sure, I mean, and just to pick up on your dashboard, point there, the report did suggest that it was less than half of the LGBT funds feel ready for the dashboards. Are you ready, Rachel? We're getting there, and I think one of the challenges for the LGPS and all the public sector schemes is at the minute, we are just so distracted by McLeod and the changes mm. that we have to implement for McLeod. So the thought of actually, you know, we really want to engage with our membership. Actually, this dashboard is a fantastic opportunity to increase member engagement and to start the conversation earlier about pension saving, assist with retirement planning. But that's only going to work if we can actually present them with good quality information and data. We can get the all the security and the, and the ID checks. I think if you looked across any sort of large scale project, as soon as you add scale to it, it becomes more complicated. And I don't think there is yet the realisation that, you know, you add all the LGPS into this, 7 million members and all the different schemes that we could have had, our members could have touched before, we're talking about big change in, in, in people contacting us and how we're going to mm. respond to that. So we will be ready. Um, I think the scheme as a whole will be ready. It's just about what order things are being done in at the minute. And as soon as we get in the cloud, we'll be on to dashboards. Uh, Tiffany, what has your correspondence, if any, been like with the government when it comes to local government pension scheme? You know, have, for example, have they received this latest research? To what extent do you have dialogue with them? So this report was under lock and key until today. So we will be discussing the recommendations in depth with our key stakeholders, for instance, in, in TPR and in DLUC as well, and with the various scheme advisory boards. They knew about this research. They had sight of some of the emerging findings. This has been a year in the making. I think we haven't gotten immediate reactions. To, I, I checked my inbox before coming to talk to you. I haven't had any any contact yet. Um, but I think what's really encouraging, and I, and I can't emphasize this enough, is that everyone is open-minded and willing and ready. There is a recognition that there's too much being asked of the LGPS. This is not sort of a secret. It's Everyone who works with the LGPS understands what is happening to the scheme in the sense of that the global impact I mentioned today on the panel is, is a real one. I mean, over three, I, I don't know what the latest figures are today that were launched, but from our report, they were calculated as over 332 billion, 70,000 employers, 7 million scheme members. So it's there is recognition that the LGPS is a heavyweight, but there's so much as going back to something that Rachel raised earlier about the lack of joined upness in discussions on the macro policy level. I think that's where that next conversation has to be had, essentially, with with our key external stakeholders. Now, you're not the only ones who are suggesting potential ideas for improving or changing public sector pensions. Uh, in an interview with the Sunday Times, Pension Minister Garperman recently said that DB pensions would eventually need to be reformed. I just wanted, you know, from both of you. What did you make of those those remarks, and is it his place to to make those suggestions? And in principle, are you in agreement? So I think if I comment first on on kind of what perhaps looking about why that comment may have been made. At the end of the day, there is a significant amount of distraction and inefficiency caused by dealing with the complexity and the web that we mm. have at the minute. So. 
Um, it's also creating a sort of barrier to us enhancing operational resilience within the, within the LGPS and a real risk that we lose engagement with employees, uh, with members and employers. So in terms of drivers for looking at some sort of better coordinated and leading body, then, then absolutely, who's the right place to take that? I mean, it's not, not necessarily for me, but what I would add... Um, building on some of the comments Tiffany's made, is that resilience is needed throughout the chain. It's not just LGPS funds and local authorities. The department themselves have also been through you know, huge change and have been under-resourced. So what, you know, in a, in a way, what do we expect? Um, so we really do need, and this comes out really strongly in the research, that there is a job for all parties to think about the role that they can play in building operational sustainability within the LGPS. And to build on what Rachel's saying as well, I think the other thing to remember that came through really strongly in the research is that I think it's really important to not perpetuate almost a, a stereotype, uh, a, a false image that if you have a public sector scheme, you've got it made, you'll be going on luxurious holidays three weeks a year, you know, drinking champagne every night. My work specifically is on LGPS, so I'm going to speak specifically on LGPS, but I feel very passionately, I mean, I'm still here after four and a half years of the PLSA because of the LGPS, I feel really passionately that the scheme, we know, and it came through so strongly in the research, that the scheme is there to really service those who work in roles of support and care in local communities. These roles are often very low paid, financially insecure, people who are part-timers, who might be coming back from maternity leave. And I think that the stat at the moment is that it's mainly women in the scheme as well, but we're going to dig down deeper into that. Uh, it was part of our Next Steps projects. And it's these workers who help local communities thrive. And so I think we have to be very careful to, A, not lump all the public sector schemes together. The LGPS is special and different. I feel like I can say that in this, in this format. And we can't forget who it serves. And the, the, the stats don't lie. And the stats are in the report, so read the report. Yeah, and just on purpose, if, if I could, I mean, the other key thing to you just in terms of what you said you know we, we are different to the public sector schemes um, because we have assets and we invest and we've seen the power of LGPS in terms of driving the responsible investment agenda driving the stewardship agenda and a, a, a final point on kind of pension adequacy which is a big theme for the PLSA if we do not get these benefits right for these particular uh, particular workers, then you're thinking from a kind of bigger picture perspective, we, we're actually mitigating long-term additional costs coming through in social care and healthcare if we don't ensure that some of our workers do get good incomes in retirement by providing adequate pension savings today. So looking at it from a very kind of broad policy perspective and thinking around the long term, the issue is not is not the benefits, it's how do we make sure it's sustainable, how do we make mm. sure that you know the, the good work that we can do and the influence we can have with the investment continues. Well, it is fun to throw those stereotypes at our friends in the public sector, Tiffany, but I sent to your right. Uh, that's, um, that's sadly all we've got time for today. Thank you both for joining us. And if you'd like to find out more about local government pension schemes, please visit our website at pensions-expert.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.